I also want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then I also want to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved among ourselves, among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would speak your transforming truth to us, that your word might go forth here with power, that we might learn to glorify you in our bodies and in our spirits. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. How do we account for the changes that have taken place in marriage and family life in America over the last 50 years, really in the entire Western world over the last 50 years? Uh, in this two-part sermon series, I'm calling this the crisis of our age because I really do believe it is a crisis. We need, as God's people, to understand the times in which we live so that we will know what to do. We need to understand the causes and consequences of the sexual revolution. We need to understand how we, as God's people, should respond and how to live in the midst of the situation we find ourselves in. How do you explain the changes that have taken place in marriage and family life over the last generation? Well, let me approach it this way, uh, by reading from Mallory Millett. Uh, I actually sent this article out this week in the updates, but I want to read a little piece of it to you. Mallory Millett uh, is the sister of Kate Millett, who just passed away not too long ago. Uh, Kate was one of the architects of the sexual revolution, you could say, in the late 60s and the 1970s. Uh, she authored the book, Sexual Politics, which became incredibly influential, something of a Bible for the sexual revolution. Uh, as Mallory tells the story, in 1969, Kate invited her to a gathering in New York City. And this is how Mallory describes it. This is one way, I think, of understanding the changes that have taken place. Katie said, come to New York. We're making revolution. Some of us are starting the National Organization of Women, and you can be part of it. We gathered at a large table as the chairperson opened the meeting with a back-and-forth recitation like a litany, a type of prayer done in the church. But now it was Marxism, the church of the left, mimicking religious practice. Why are we here today, she asked, 
to make revolution, they answered. What kind of revolution, she replied. The cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make cultural revolution, she demanded. By destroying the American family, they answered. How do we destroy the family, she came back. By destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch, she replied. By taking away his power. And how do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. How can we destroy monogamy? Their answer left me dumbstruck, breathless, disbelieving my ears. Was I on planet Earth? Who were these people? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality, they resounded. They proceeded with a long discussion on how to advance these goals by establishing the National Organization of Women. It was clear they desired nothing less than the utter destruction of Western society. The upshot was that the only way to do this was to invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution. The media, the educational system, the universities, high schools, K-12 through schools, school boards, the judiciary, the legislatures, the executive branch, even the library system. It fell on my ears as a ludicrous scheme, as if they were a band of highly imaginative children planning a Brinks robbery. To me, this sounded silly. Now, in 1969, it probably did sound silly. Uh, in 2018, it doesn't sound so silly. In fact, it sounds prophetic. Because the cultural revolutionaries pulled it off. The revolution has largely won the culture. It has swept over our culture, changing everything. We live in a completely different situation. Now, what's interesting, Kate and Mallory, these sisters, went two very different directions. Mallory, my understanding is, eventually became a Christian and is a pro-life activist, which means she spent a good part of her life trying to undo the damage her sister Kate has caused. In fact, think about some of that damage. Let me um, read a little bit more from her article. Listen again to what Mallory says about the philosophy of the sexual revolution and how it's been worked out. Imagine a girl of 17 or 18 at the kitchen table with mom studying the syllabus for her first year of college. And there's a class called Women's Studies. Hmm, this could be interesting, says mom. Maybe you could get something out of this. Seems innocuous to her. How could she suspect that this is a class in which her innocent daughter will be taught that her father is a villain, that her mother is a fool who allowed a man to enslave her into the barbaric practice of monogamy and family life and motherhood, which is a waste of her talents? No, she must not follow in her mother's footsteps. That would be submitting to life as a mindless drone for some domineering man, the oppressor, who has mesmerized her with tricks like romantic love. Never be lured into this chicanery. She will be taught. And then Mallory Millick goes on. By the time the women's studies professor professors finish with your daughter, she will be a shell of the innocent girl you knew. She goes on, she says, I've known women who fell for this creed in their youth, who now in their 50s and 60s cry themselves to sleep for decades, grieving the children they'll never have and the ones they coldly murdered. Where are my children? Where are my grandchildren? They cried to me. Your sister's books destroyed my life. That, in a nutshell, it's not the only perspective on the problem we face, but that, in a nutshell, is the legacy of the sexual revolution. Destroyed lives, destroyed families, destroyed marriages, destroyed men, destroyed women. The reality is, your grandmother, maybe I should say great-grandmother, and grandfather, or great-grandfather, 
almost certainly knew far, far, far more about men and women than any of those university professors today. Because they knew that men and women are different and that the differences should be appreciated. They knew that sex and covenant commitment belong together. But what was once common sense has now been lost. The sexual revolution has left our culture confused. We are confused about men and women, about masculinity and femininity. We're, we're confused about sex and marriage and about work and children. The sexual revolution can best be described, I think, as an alternative religion. Indeed, a rival religion to the Christian faith. In the ancient world, it simply would have been called the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, or perhaps some other pagan deity. We've moved past that kind of crude paganism, but it is still a form of idolatry. It's just as idolatrous. But it's not just that the sexual revolution is fighting against God. It's also fighting against creation. And this is so important for us to understand. The sexual revolution is not just an attack on Scripture. Really, you could say it's an attack on science. It's not only anti-Christian, it's anti-human. It's not just opposed to God, it's opposed to creation. It's opposed to the way the world works, to the way the world has been designed. We started last week looking at this from a number of different angles uh, and, and, and taking into account a number of different texts from Scripture and trying to summarize them. And I want to continue doing that this morning, looking at these same kind of themes. And some of, there are some very important qualifications I want to tell you in last week's sermon that I think also apply to this week's sermon. I won't repeat all of those, but if you weren't here for last week's sermon, you might want to go listen to that because it might help address some of the questions that inevitably rise when we take on this kind of topic. Uh, but I want to continue looking at some of these themes. These are the kinds of truths that we see in Scripture. Men and women are different from one another and are designed to complement and complete one another. Yes, men and women both share the image of God. We're equal in worth and value in every way. But we image God in different ways. Men and women are different in their outlook and orientation towards the world. They're different in their bodies and their appearance. There are differences in their demeanor and in their chief characteristics. Further, we can say God created man and woman in order to bring the two together in the one flesh union of marriage. Catch that in Mark 10 as Jesus is describing how things were from the beginning. He says God made them male and female for this reason that they might come together in the covenant of marriage. And so God made man, male and female, in order to bring the two together in this one flesh union of marriage, which is to be an exclusive and permanent commitment. Marriage is one man, one woman, and one life. And God created sex, including sexual pleasure, to be enjoyed within this covenant of marriage. And he designed marriage to be the best possible context within which to raise children with a mother and father. Again, each contributing in unique ways, not as interchangeable pieces, but contributing uniquely to the child's nurture and maturation. And so the upshot of all of this is that our bodies are good. Sex is good. Marriage is good. It's good to be a man if God's made you a man. It's good to be a woman if God has made you a woman. And yet we also have to see how sin has distorted all of these gifts. And again, sin not only turns us against God, it also turns us against one another and indeed against ourselves. 
sin is the reason we have the gender wars. The reason men and women can't get along the way that they should. But sin not only turns us against God and against one another, it even turns us against ourselves so we make war against our own bodies. Let's unpack what some of these things mean. And again, I'm not trying to look at one specific text this morning. I'm just trying to summarize what is in a number of these texts in Scripture. Picking up where we left off last week, let's let's think about this. Think about the fact that men and women are physically different from one another. What is the meaning of that? What is the meaning that God has built into our bodies as men and women? What do our bodies symbolize? How do our bodies carry particular Meaning. How does the design of our bodies reveal God's plan for us as men and women? Remember last week I pointed out that our different origins as men and women point to deep differences in our orientation towards the world. Man was made from the ground and is oriented towards the world of things. Woman was made from the man's side and is oriented towards the world of persons or relationships. And then I think that's further underscored in the way that men and women experience the fall, the way they experience the curse in Genesis 3 after they've sinned. What does God say to them? The man experiences the curse primarily in the realm of his work. Out in the world, thorns and thistles are going to get in the way of his work. They're going to get in the way of his taking dominion. And the woman is cursed primarily in the realm of family life, in the home, the domestic sphere. In the realm of childbearing and marriage, in pain, she will give birth to children. And of course, that pain continues as she seeks to raise them up. What we need to see is that what Scripture teaches is fully consistent with the world as it exists. There is this interlocking fit between what Scripture says and how the world actually works. We can even put it this way. What Scripture teaches is fully consistent with what scientists have learned. There's actually a great deal of scientific work that has been done to study men and women and how men and women are different, sometimes referred to as the science of sex or the science of gender. And we now know a great deal about the physiological and psychological differences between men and women. This is how one scholar summarizes it, and I think this is a helpful summary. Men and women differ biologically, psychologically, and relationally. Biologically, the male is physically more outwardly directed, just what we would expect from the Scriptures. Biologically, the male is physically more outwardly directed and the woman more inwardly. This is evidenced in a number of ways. For example, the male bone structure is generally heavier and better shaped for addressing obstacles in the environment, whereas the woman's bone structure is weaker in shape for the bearing of children. Men's bodies made for work, women's bodies made for giving life and, and nurturing that life. The male hand, to take another example, the male hand is stronger and the male strided muscular, musculature is more capable of strong and sudden contraction. The bodily form of the male is more rugged than the female, whereas the female form is suitable for the bearing of children. Women are biologically oriented toward the family and men are oriented toward the world. So that's their physiology. Descriptive psychology studies the consciousness of human beings. Building upon these physical differences, different mental and emotional traits are found between men and women. Our sexuality pervades our person. Men usually have more distance from their emotions and evidence a tendency to detach themselves from immediate reactions, whereas women tend to be more immediate and spontaneous in their responses. And I want to say, neither one of those is better than the other. They're just different. And in fact, they need one another. Is it better to be detached 
or spontaneous. Well, you need both. I mean, that, that's really the whole point. It's not that one is better than the other. Cognitive science bears out these differences as well. Patterns of thought, men tend to analyze and objectify, whereas women are more prone to be intuitive, personally related, and to exercise empathy. Men tend to be more visual and spatial, and women more verbal. There have been studies done that show that women use a lot more words uh, than men do. It's, it's, it's just a kind of fact of who we are as men and women. Women are more verbal. Men are more goal-oriented. Women are more care and need-oriented. Again, all things that we would expect scientists to discover flowing out of what Scripture teaches. Women are more capable mentally of multitasking and of nurture. Men are more inclined towards sequential planning and goal setting. Women are more welcoming relationally, whereas men are more aggressive and competitive. Okay? These are, these are the findings of scientists. And I would say that they mesh very, very well with what scripture itself teaches. And then the scholar draws these conclusions. Because all of these things are true, in every society all throughout history that has ever been studied, these things are true. There's a sexual division of labor. It's been true in every society, every culture, throughout the whole history of the world. There's a sexual division of labor where men bear primary responsibility for the larger community and women bear primary responsibility for domestic management and the rearing of young children. You see that in every society that's ever existed. It's reflective of the way God made the world and what we find in the Scriptures. The problem with the sexual revolution is it wants to undo all of this. It wants to challenge all of these realities. The world now wants to say our bodies don't matter, that biology isn't destiny, that actually your feelings can determine your sexual identity. But biblically we have to say no. From our observations of nature even, we have to say no. There are fixed differences between men and women, and those differences fit with what God calls us to do. The roles God assigns us are not arbitrary. We're designed for them. Our bodies do matter, and they fit with, and they reveal to us God's design for us as men and women. Biblically, we can say there is an oughtness. There are a set of obligations that follow from our bodily identity. So we can say, because you are a man, you have these certain tasks that come with the fact that you're a man. Or because you're a woman, there are these certain tasks that come with being a woman. But that's simply a way of saying you're to be what God has made you to be. To use the body the way it was designed to be used. The body God has given to you. Now, this design of the body applies to other issues, too. We want to live in accord with our natures, with the way God has designed us. This has all kinds of implications. This is why Scripture condemns homosexuality. And indeed, in Romans 1, calls homosexuality unnatural. It's contrary to nature, contrary to God's creation design. Indeed, Paul in Romans 1 says the practice of homosexuality is exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. See, the reality is same-sex bodies fit together. Same-sex bodies cannot fit together the way that male and female bodies do. Uh, two men can never be one flesh the way that a man and a woman can be. And that's even why Romans 1 goes on to say that even the desire for someone of the same sex is a vile passion or a dishonorable desire. Now you say that in our culture today, and that's considered hate speech. But there's a reason for this, and I'll come back to this in a, in a few minutes, and you'll see why. 
But the bottom line is, this was, is not what God made our bodies for. And indeed, the fact that the human race multiplies itself or reproduces itself sexually teaches you this. That the human race reproduces as a man and a woman come together. The fact that the human reproductive system, in a, in a sense, is incomplete apart from a person of the opposite sex is proof that God has made the man and the woman for one another in a way that same-sex relationships can never duplicate. God made the man and the woman for one another. And our reproductive systems indeed show us that. The reproductive system is the only system in the human body that's incomplete. You don't need another another human to complete your circulatory system or your respiratory system. They're complete in each individual. But it's not so with the reproductive system. It cannot fulfill its purpose without someone of the opposite sex. Likewise, we can say this is why we must reject transgenderism. The transgender movement has picked up uh, a lot of momentum. It's sort of a fad right at the moment, and it's even crept into the church in various ways. The transgender philosophy says that our feelings, rather than our bodies, determine our gender. Our feelings, rather than our biology, determine our gender. And so, for example, you can have a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa. That's the philosophy of transgenderism. But what do we find in Scripture? We find in Genesis, God made man male and female. And if God made each of us male or female, we cannot unmake and remake ourselves into the opposite gender. And indeed, everything that science has discovered about the genders or about the sexes bears this out as well. Every cell in your body is sexed. Every cell in your body has either male or female chromosomes, and that cannot be changed. No amount of chemicals or surgeries can actually change someone's sex. It's just not possible. Your sex or your gender is an immutable, created fact of your existence. God has made you a male or a female. God forms each person as a male or a female from conception onwards. And so we can say possession of a male or female body is a gift from God. And it means you have a calling to live out your masculinity or your femininity. And when people struggle with that, we need to meet them where they are and show compassion. But we also have to be truthful about the way God has made the world. Indeed, going a little bit further with this, I find it very interesting that the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 22, forbids a man to wear a woman's clothing and vice versa. Men should dress like men. Women should dress like women is what it's saying. I think this is also an aspect. It's not the only aspect, but it's one aspect of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 when he goes into hair length for men and women. It seems so extraneous. It seems like such a foreign thing for Scripture to talk about. But at least part of the meaning of what Paul is getting at when he brings hair length into discussion is this. Men should look and act and dress like men, and women should look and act and dress like Women. And certainly the ways that we express our masculinity and femininity can vary from age to age and place to place. There's certainly cultural variation and flexibility there. But here's the point. Paul is saying it is rebellion. It's a sin against God and against nature to seek to adopt the characteristics or the dress of the opposite sex. Men ought to look like men. Women ought to look like women. Paul focuses on hair length in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, does not even nature teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor? 
But we could say, does not nature teach you that if a man wears lipstick and a dress, that's a dishonor? Again, a man should look like a man and a, and a woman should look like a woman. And to contradict that is to dishonor your own body. Here's another way we can see that our bodies fit together with God's design. Just as men and women are designed for each other, we can say, really, we are designed for monogamy. I don't have to convince you that Scripture teaches that, that marriage is one man and one woman. But the sexual revolution has contradicted this, and so what do we say to it? The sexual revolution has promoted casual sex. It's given rise to the hookup culture, as it's called. And we need to understand this is not only contrary to God's law, again, it is contrary to our created natures. It's not what we were made for. The sexual revolution does not fit with reality. And this is why it produces so much pain and misery. The sexual revolution treats sex as nothing more than a physical desire, a physical urge. There's no mystery, there's no mysticism to it, there's no symbolism to it, no deeper spiritual meaning, no deeper emotional connection that has to take place. There's no depth of meaning in sex itself, in the worldview of the sexual revolution. The body doesn't mean anything intrinsically, and so sex doesn't mean anything either. But think about the passage we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul gives such a different view, a view of sex that supercharges it with meaning. He says, even the man who joins himself to a prostitute, so you can't have any more casual sex than that, even in that situation, the man becomes one with her. There is a bond formed. The problem is, in that case, the bond ought not to be there. It's a bond that's going to be immediately broken. And so this, this is why it's such a disaster. But it's clear there, Paul says, sex has an intrinsic meaning. So even the most casual form of sex still creates a, a, a kind of bond, a one flesh relationship. You could put it this way, in the act of sex, your body makes a promise whether you intend to or not. But of course, the problem with sex outside of marriage is that that promise that your body has made is broken as soon as it's made. But this is what's really interesting. Not only does Scripture clearly teach this, but this is something that uh, scientists have found as well. Uh, scientists have actually found uh, that the uh, act of sex is bonding as well. That in, in, in intercourse, hormones are released that bond the two partners to one another, that make men and women both feel attached and trustful towards their partner. Indeed, it's been called the monogamy molecule. That's how scientists have identified it. It creates this, this bonding, this attachment. So again, even if you have sex thinking it's going to be casual and not really mean anything, your biology is going to trump your intentions. Your biochemistry binds you to the other person whether you want it to or not. There's a kind of involuntary chemical commitment that happens. What we see, and again, this is... This is science, our study of nature and the world, meshing beautifully with what Scripture teaches. We see that we were really designed to bond sexually to one other person. We see that our very biochemistry shows us that sex and a permanent commitment ought to go together. That sex and covenant belong together. By nature, we were made for the covenant commitment of marriage. Sex itself is designed to be enjoined within that covenant. 
And sex outside of a marriage is therefore outside of marriage is not only sin against God, it's really sin against your own body. The scientists would tell us it's even sin against your own biochemistry, sin against your body's own biology. So yes, we can say it's sin against the body. When Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6, I think it's, a, it's loaded what he means by that. It's sin against the body of Christ to take Christ and join him to a prostitute. But it's also sin against our own physical bodies. We're violating our natures if we engage in sex outside of marriage. Sex has an object of meaning that trumps our interpretations and our intentions in the act. Paul says the body is a temple. It's, it's sacred space. Your body's a temple, not a nightclub. Use your body, Paul says, to honor God. Use your body as it has been designed. We have to respect how God has made us as men and women. We want to tell the truth with our bodies. So Nancy Percy puts it, uh, and I, her book, Love Thy Body, is very, very good. Uh, she quotes C.S. Lewis. Uh, who says those who have sex outside of marriage are trying to isolate one kind of union, that is the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. See, a man and a woman in marriage have a total union, a, a complete sharing of life. Everything about them is shared. But if you have sex outside of marriage, you're trying to isolate a sexual union with another person and not have union in all these other ways. That's just not how it works. That's not how we were created to live. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. When we have sex outside of marriage, we are essentially lying with our bodies. Our actions are saying that we are united on all levels, when in reality, we are not. We are contradicting ourselves. We are putting on an act. We are being dishonest. When Paul says, glorify God with your body, he's saying, be truthful with how you use your body. Be honest and use your body the way God designed it to be used. Now, when we talk about what it means to be male and female, we have to do justice to these differences. Indeed, we should appreciate the differences. At the same time, we don't want to exaggerate the differences between men and women. And so we should be aware of certain stereotypes of men and women because sometimes stereotypes exaggerate the differences in unhealthy ways and will give us a, a distorted picture of what manhood and womanhood are really about. In fact, they'll really give us a picture of what manhood and womanhood look like distorted and disfigured by sin, corrupted by sin. Think about some of the stereotypes that we have in our culture today. And these stereotypes actually have changed in some ways in our modern world since the sexual revolution. But there are a number of stereotypes that we have for both men and women. What's the stereotype of a true man today? What's a man's man supposed to be like? Well, the stereotype says that he's strong. And certainly we can say that's a good thing. A man's strength is a good thing. God made men to want to be strong so they can provide and protect for their loved ones. But at the same time, that stereotype misses something because the most important strength a man has is not physical. It's spiritual. It's interesting. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David's final words to Solomon are this. He says, be strong and prove yourself a man. On his deathbed, David was not telling Solomon he needed to hit the gym more often. Be strong. That's not what it means primarily. 
It's true that men are defined by their strength. But what was the kind of strength David was really talking about? It's kind of strength he talks about elsewhere in the Psalms and that you find elsewhere in Scripture. It's not so much physical strength. That can be a part of it. I'm not dismissing that. But it's especially strength of character. It's strength of will. It's the strength that comes from being disciplined in all of life, from being self-controlled. Again, the stereotype we have says the real man is, oh, maybe he's the outdoorsman type. He's the, he's a hunter. You know, that's a, that's a popular stereotype for men. Okay, great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with hunting. Hunting's good. But again, it can miss the point. It can mislead us. It can distract us from the real issues. It can be, uh, it can be good for a man to involve himself in those kinds of activities. But it does no good for a man to be able to kill a deer in the woods. If he can't also slay the dragon on his doorstep, what good does it do if he can fight if he can't fight the real enemy, Satan himself? Again, we see, yes, men are called to be strong, but a man's deepest strength is his spiritual strength. And the greatest battles he fights are spiritual battles. Again, in our culture, the stereotypical man is a womanizer. The man's man is a ladies' man, right? That's the stereotype we have. But we have to say no. The man who is a womanizer is actually effeminate. He's actually denying his own manhood. We might think of him as a manly man, but that's just because our view of manhood is so warped and twisted and distorted. In fact, it's really interesting. All of the traditional, classical Christian theologians who discuss manhood make this same point. And the point is this. The man who is not sexually self-controlled is really not a man at all. He is effeminate. He lacks manly virtue and manly courage and manly discipline. A real man is a one-woman man. That's how his manhood is expressed. Well, that's for men. Think about this for women for just a minute. We've got stereotypes of, uh, of, of women in our day, and certainly these have changed a lot in the last 50 years or so. What's the stereotype of the modern woman? Well, she's the liberated woman, right? But what is she liberated from? Well, the modern liberated woman is liberated from men or liberated from a husband who as her head would be viewed as an oppressor. She's liberated from nature, from her own body, from her own body's design because her body would saddle her with bearing and nurturing children with that kind of responsibility that would keep her from competing with a man in the marketplace. What is she liberated from? She's liberated from children who she traditionally felt this strong responsibility towards. Gloria Steinem said a liberated woman is one who has sex before marriage and a job after. That's the stereotypical view. But the thing is, that's not liberation at all. That's not true freedom for a woman. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a woman working outside of the home, having a job. That, that, that's not the point. The point is much, much deeper than that. Or think about this, this stereotype. The stereotype says that, uh, uh, the woman is totally focused on her own beauty. And again, here we can say there's something good about this. It's good that, that a woman wants to be beautiful, just like it's good that a man wants to be strong. But just as a man's true strength is not going to be found in a weight room, a woman's true beauty cannot be bought in the makeup section over the counter at Macy's. 
That's not the, 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 the truest or the deepest beauty that she's called to. It's what the Apostle Peter says. Apostle Peter says, true beauty, the, the, the true beauty of the woman is a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. We're thinking about the kind of power that the stereotypical women has today. So many women will talk about power, being empowered, girl power. There seems to be this power shortage among women and they're trying to do something about it. But again, a woman's real power is not found in imitating a man's drive in the workplace, nor is a woman's true power found in showing off her sex appeal. Her real power, her true power, is found in her character. This is what you find in passages like Proverbs 31. Her true power is found in her gentle spirit, in her inward beauty. That's where her true power, feminine power, is found. That's what true girl power looks like. Now, these distortions do not mean that we reject stereotypes altogether. Stereotypes actually can be helpful. And there are positive stereotypes of men and women given to us in various places in Scripture that we need to take into account. Let me wrap up this morning by giving you one example of this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read this morning. It gives us a sort of stereotypical understanding, not so much of men and women in general, but of mothers and fathers. And I think it's really, really helpful. Because obviously motherhood is one way that women can express their femininity. Not the only way, but one way. Just as fatherhood is a way for men to express their masculinity. And it's interesting, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul in verse 7 uses maternal imagery, a maternal stereotype. And then in verse 11, he uses paternal imagery, a paternal stereotype. So what is his stereotypical mother like? What does he tell us a mother is like? Well, verse 7 He says, we were gentle among you just as a mother cherishes her own children. He goes on in verse 8, he says, we shared not only the gospel but our lives because you had become dear to us. So what is Paul saying about motherhood here? Mothers are gentle nurturers. Mothers cherish their children. To cherish means to treasure. You cherish that which you find Valuable. That's what mothers are to do. They are to cherish their children. They are to share themselves with their children. They share themselves with the children they cherish by being a gentle presence in their lives. That's what Paul is saying. The mother is called to be a supporter and a nurturer. That's the stereotypical mother. That's what she's like. Moms make children feel cherished. That's what motherhood is all about. That's a faithful stereotype. But then in verse 11, Paul goes on to talk about fatherhood. He says, you know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged you as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of the God who has called you. This is what fathers do, Paul is saying. This is how a father compliments a mother. He motivates and shapes his children in active and powerful ways, mixing exhortations that comfort and exhortations that challenge so the children grow up and mature and begin to walk worthy of the calling they've received. In other words, Paul's saying, what does does a father do? A father brings out the best in us. Fathers make kids want to be their best and do their best. That's a father's job. He's the driving force behind the kids in this way. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of overlap between what mothers and fathers do. We can't be too tight about this. After all, Paul and his fellow male ministers 
played both maternal and paternal roles in the Thessalonian church. Paul says we were mothers to you in this way and we were fathers to you in this way. And he's talking about a group of men who are ministering among the Thessalonians. So there's obviously all kinds of overlap here. But Paul also obviously did not see fathers and mothers as identical, interchangeable pieces in the family, as though you could just speak of parents in a kind of generic way. No, for Paul, mothers and fathers each have a unique role to play in the family and in the development of the children. Mothers are especially known for their affection. Fathers are especially known for their authority. Mothers nurture us and support us. Fathers drive us to be our best. That's what Paul is saying. And in all of this, of course, we see God's beautiful design for men and women and for for family life, for children. In fact, you take all of this together, all that we've seen this morning, you have God's beautiful design for family life as a whole, for marriage, for sexuality, for life in the church and in society. Let me close with just a couple thoughts here as we wrap up this series. First, we need to remember anytime we discuss these truths about sex and sexuality and manhood and womanhood, all of us are sinners. All of us have been damaged by the fall, damaged by sin. All of us have failed in these very things. And so we need to remember our salvation is not found in being the perfect man or being the perfect woman. Our salvation is found in God's grace. Our salvation is found in Christ's cross, not in our performance. So don't think that you can justify yourself by how you perform as a man or as a woman. Jesus died to take away all your shame and guilt, including all of your sexual shame and guilt. Jesus died so you could live shame-free and guilt-free. And it does not matter what you've done. It does not matter how badly you've messed it up. Trust in Jesus and you're right with God. Trust in Jesus and you're being restored and renewed. And I think when we know that, when we remember that, not only does it give us a new confidence to go out and live as men and women, but I think it also helps us be compassionate towards others who struggle. And we live in a culture full of sexual strugglers. Many who will struggle in much greater ways than than perhaps any of us. But reminding ourselves of this will make us compassionate towards them. It will make us compassionate towards those who struggle with same-sex attraction. It will make us compassionate toward those suffering with gender dysphoria who feel like they should have been born the other gender. It will make us compassionate towards those who are still reaping the bitter fruit of bad choices made many years ago. It will make us compassionate towards that woman who's gotten pregnant out of wedlock as well as towards the man who is fathered the child. It will make us compassionate even towards the woman who's had an abortion. There is compassion and grace and mercy for all sinners. Indeed, I think we should also be reminded this pushes us to be compassionate towards those who are victims of other people's sin. Abuse victims need to know it is not their fault. They are not to blame for what has happened to them. And God's grace is sufficient. God is with them in the midst of their struggle. We live in a sexually broken culture. And our culture will fall into ever greater despair if we as the church do not show a better way. By how we live and by what we teach, we must show the world that God's way is the best way. 
that God's way is the way we were designed to live. In the end, the best defense of God's design is simply to live it out in the church. To show the world by the way we live, this is how it ought to be. And of course, to also show the world when we fall down, when we fail miserably. God's grace is there to forgive us and pick us back up. Our world needs this whole message. Our world needs the whole counsel of God. God's design and God's forgiveness for the ways we violate it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the way that you have made us. And we do ask your forgiveness for ways that we have violated your word and our design, the ways we've sinned against you and against our own bodies. Father, we pray that your grace would empower us to live according to your design and to proclaim these truths to others in our sexually saturated but sexually confused culture. Pray that you would help us to do these things here in this church and beyond, that we might bring this message of your forgiveness and your transforming grace and the goodness of your design, that we might bring all of this to the world around us and that you would make us effective in proclaiming these truths. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.